Hey everybody, welcome to Skype with Scientists Live. Today, we are super excited to be talking uh, to Melissa Mulho. We're gonna be talking all about how uh, working with plants and plant diseases and plant health can help us solve world hunger. So uh, a pretty heavy and important topic. So I'm really, really excited to have Melissa here today. Um, so, this is part of Plant Week as part of the American Phytopathological Society partnership with Skype a Scientist. Uh, phyto being plants, pathological being diseases, so a society all about basically plant health. And so uh, we're, we're really glad that we're talking about this topic and uh, we're really happy to have Melissa here today. So Melissa, would you like to introduce yourself, say who you are, uh, what you do, and why you like it, and then we'll get into questions. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me and thank you for the introduction, Sarah. So, hello everyone. I am Melissa and I'm an international grad student in the plant pathology department in the University of Kentucky. I study virus house interactions in plants. Specifically, I study how the virus steal specific resources from the cell to replicate and infect the plant cell. So, I got interested in plant viruses when I was in college. I was doing an internship in the Center for Genomic Sciences in Mexico. And I was studying bacteriophages, which are these viruses that infect bacteria. So I was super interested in learning like how the virus could affect the symbiosis between the plant and the bacteria. Um, yeah, what was the other thing I had to- Why you like it? Oh, I like it. Well, um, I started to study plant viruses because I wanted to learn more about viruses in general and how they infect plants. And I also wanted to understand how the plants protect from viruses and other pathogens because uh, they have a different system than humans. So that was very, very interesting for me. And and during college, I had the chance to meet several scientists from various fields. So I had the opportunity to explore different science topics. And definitely uh, viruses was, pathogens in general, was one of the ones who I liked the most. So, yeah. Super cool. So what exactly is the difference, if there's any, between a virus like that might affect us, like, oh, I don't know, coronavirus, or a, a virus that would infect a plant? Yeah, well, in a macromolecular level, like in the systems, well, they are very different, like a human system or animal system versus a plant system, we have huge differences in how we will react to the viruses. But when we go to a more cellular level, like for example, in my case that I study replication, replication is very conserved between uh, animal and plant viruses. So we can see similarities, but for example, they steal the same resources, the same whole cellular resources, or they steal and uh, manipulate the same pathways. So yeah, basically in a big level, they may seem different, um, but in a small level, they are quite similar. Very cool. All right. Um, so how did you get to where you are today? Well, um, like as a plant scientist and as an international grad student, I believe that everything started really when I was in high school. So 
I had the opportunity to be part of this small scientist program where I had the chance to work next to a scientist and go to different research centers. And because I had the chance to live in Mexico City, there were a lot. So I had that opportunity to explore several fields. So when I was in high school, actually, I wanted to study finances, but I realized that numbers perhaps were not the best for me. And having this approach to science, I, I decided to apply for a scientific career during my uh, undergrad program. And there I had much more opportunities to interact with scientists all over the world. So actually I met my current advisor in one of those seminars and meetings. And I pretty much say, I'm interested in your topic. And he offered me to come first, first as a visiting scholar. And then after I finished my internship, I came back as a PhD student. So yeah, it was kind of like a big trajectory or trip, so yeah. Super cool, awesome. Um, so what made you decide to make the leap going to the US? Was it just that you loved that advisor so much or um, the project or, or what sort of like drove that decision? Well, I think that there were like two main things that influenced that decision. The first one was like Mexico is the neighbor from US and most of the scientists we interacted during our seminars come from US just because of the proximity. Uh, so I think that we had more chances to come to the US versus other countries. So and the second was definitely the project. I was very interested in learning more about plant viruses and I just felt like the system and the what when he presented what he was studying was like I want to do that. <laughs> so yeah, those things those two things influenced my decision. Awesome. Um, so we're, we want to talk today about plants and plant diseases, but really also about like food security and um, maybe how climate change is affecting food security. So um, is there any way that climate change is affecting how viruses? and plants interact with one another? Yeah, definitely. So there have not been like, uh, most of the studies are based of course in hypotheses and observations, but recently there have been publications where, uh, for example, plant viruses, most of them are transmitted by vectors, like insects, just like humans, you know, that we have uh, mosquito insects, well, in plants, we also have aphids and white flies that uh, transmit this virus from plant to plant. So they have observed that when temperature increases, the population of the vectors also increases. And because of that, the frequency and the persistence of the viral diseases also increase. So it's more like these correlations that they have observed with the temperature. And one of the examples they have is, for example, tomato jello leaf curl virus. Like the, the insect, uh, which is a white fly, it doesn't like cold weather. So, so when the weather, when, during the winter, that actually tomatoes are not grown, it gives a chance like to break that pattern on infection. But for example, in more tropical regions like Mexico, where we don't really have winter, so there is not that break. And if the temperature increases, the white fly will love it because it likes that weather. So it will have more 
progeny and then that will increase the frequency of the plant viral diseases so yeah right and what does that virus do to the tomato well uh virologists usually name like the viruses based on the symptoms so this virus is tomato yellow leaf core virus so it causes like yellowish pattern in the leaves and then coral and most of them depending on the stage of infection, but for example, in the early development of the plant, it will cause that the plant cannot produce fruits, and, uh, or when they produce it, they look yellowish. And of course, when we go to the supermarket and we see like these yellowish fruits, it's like, uh, I rather, if I'm going to pay, I'd rather buy the red one, you know? Right, yeah, so, totally. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not good. Um, so let's say that we're like growing a garden in the backyard and we want to not have our plants get viruses. Is there anything that we can do like pesticides or is there something specifically antiviral that we can do to protect them? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Actually, different humans for plants, they are not known commercial antiviral. So the best way, just like any viral disease, either humans and plants is prevention. So, because they are not antivirals, most of the time what farmers opt to do or like people in their gardens is just when they find a plant that has a virus, they just remove it immediately. And then they just burn it and get rid of it. So some of them may use pesticides just against the vector for the insects, but most of the time it's not suggested or it's not recommendable because it is expensive. And also the, the vectors can transmit the virus, most of them within minutes. So it's just like they fit from one plant and when they fit from another plant who is susceptible to that virus, they are just going to transmit it immediately. So by the time the pesticide makes effect to kill the uh, mosquito or the white fly, it can be already a little bit late. So yeah. So it's like you you have to quarantine your plants just like we're currently quarantining all in our houses right now. <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. yes. Like, yeah, like that advantage with plants is that you can get rid of them easily and then just like, right. you're like, okay, I will remove this plant from my crop, etc. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. And for example, just right now that we are at home and following like this social distancing and washing our hands to uh, prevent the virus, the infection of the virus. So just the same with plants, like when you are managing your plants and you need to cut, uh, like to, to trim the plant, it is important to clean the tools because you do not want to uh, infect the other plant. Like viruses need an open wound to enter because they are parasites and infect specifically the cell. So yeah, it is important that we make sure that we don't facilitate that for them so washing our tools like washing our hands or like yes isolating the the plants who may be sick and the ones that are healthy making sure that in this case if the plant is transmitted by vectors making sure that uh, we also get rid of the vectors etc etc so mm -hmm. right cool Sounds good. Um, so to what extent do viruses uh, kill the plants that we need to eat? Like, are they really um, affecting our food security in a major way? Yes, actually plant viral diseases are the second most common disease in plants. And they, yeah, they 
can cause like huge negative impact in food crops. For example, uh, there has been in citrus, which is a virus that is citrus tristeza, which has greatly affected the industry citrus in Florida. And also the cassava mosaic disease, which is caused by more than 20 different viruses, actually. Wow. Um, cassava is a staple food in regions, in several regions in Africa. So that virus has really hit the, uh, that population. So yeah, they can definitely affect the food security. And in general, you know, plant, uh, plant diseases and pests altogether can cause up to 40% of crop losses. And they can cost uh, around 20, around 220 billion dollars annually to the economy, just plant diseases. So imagine in a world that we are living right now, where one of nine people suffer from hunger, and around two billion people have experienced uh, extreme to moderate food insecurity, losing 40 percent of those crops that could could go to was feeding people and losing all that money too and that investment that could be used for other things is just like huge. Do you say 40% of crops go down from plant diseases? Yeah, up to 40%. So usually it's like 20 to 40%. But yeah, to plant diseases and pests. That's so, wild. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Okay. So so what can we do to increase food security? Well, what we can do is we have to follow a multidisciplinary approach. So one of the first things we need to do is we need to invest in plant sciences to make plants that are more resistant to diseases. We need to invest in agricultural research overall and in rural infrastructure, in natural resources management, reforms in human resources. And even every person can contribute to reduce uh, food loss and food food waste in general. Like, for example, when you go to the supermarket, have a list of the things you want to buy. And when you like check that when you put your products in the fridge, your fridge is at the right temperature so they don't spoil. And I recently read that you can follow this like FIFA rule, which is like first in, first out. So when you arrange your your groceries in, in around your like house, just make sure that the products that will start sooner are closer to you so you can use them. Uh, there have been a lot of projects going around the world. For example, some people have started to uh, make this movement of ugly food is also nutritious, you know? So instead of to go instead of buying like the perfect carrot, which is orange and like frayed and it has like this very beautiful uh, shape. You can also, if you don't need it, like for certain recipes and you need to do maybe smash carrots, you can also just buy that not so perfect carrot and then use it or like smash potatoes and so on. So in that way, we also do not uh, waste any food because one big part of that is that once we can see the food in the grocery store, uh, we need to think that a lot of people, farmers, scientists, uh, a lot of the investment has been put in that food crop, like water, 
natural resources, energy, time, money, and just like throw it away is just a huge waste of time. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading something that was like looking at the top contributors to climate change, and one of them was food waste because you not only grew the food, you then schlepped the food from where it was grown to your grocery store, and if you're just chucking it in the trash, it's just such a horrible thing to do. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, we consider, we have to consider that actually they produce methane, which one is right. one of the main gases that contribute to climate change. So, yeah. Yes, very important. Um, so, what crops are consumed the most by people? Well, that will depend on the region, definitely. But one of the main crops that is consumed all over the world is rice. Rice is a staple crop. And the other is, for example, in Mexico, it could be corn. Mm -hmm. Corn is the base of all our main food products. Yeah. Uh, in the US, it could be corn and wheat and also rice. And in other regions, as I mentioned before, for example, in some regions in Africa, it can be cassava. They do a lot of uh, things with cassava. So yeah, those are the main, some of the main crops. Real staple, sounds good. Mm -hmm. um, so what specifically is your project that you're working on? Like what questions are you trying to answer about viruses? Okay, so I study bioreplication. And in my case, I use uh, tomato bushy stone virus, which is a which is a virus that infects tomato plant, and mm -hmm. I use it as a model virus. So I have the advantage to work with also uh, Nicotiana vintamiana. This plant is related to tobacco. It's like the cousin of, the cousin of it. And the advantage of this plant is that it's small, it's cheap, it's very easy to grow. Uh, so, and also plant virologists love it because it's very susceptible to a lot of viruses. So you can infect it and you'll see the symptoms very easily depending on the virus you are using. So I specifically look which plant proteins and pathways the virus utilize for its own benefit. For example, I may silence a gene in the plant. Uh, and for silencing, I mean I reduce the expression of that uh, protein in the plant. And then I infect the plant with the virus and I see what is happening to the viral application. Like if, for example, I silence the gene and the viral application goes up, it means that that gene may influence the dispense of the plant. Like, so, but if I silence the gene and the replication of the virus goes down, it means that that gene was important for the virus. So Great. yeah, that's what I do. That's super cool. Awesome. So, okay, this is kind of a silly question, but I know I used to work across the hall from a lobster lab and at the end of the experiments, they would just like have a lobster cookout. Um, it was like the best day of uh, live it, working on that floor because it was just like lobster everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> do you get to take home your tomatoes and eat them if they're not diseased? Like what, where do all those tomatoes go? Wow, that's, a, that's an awesome question. Actually, one of my favorite part, parts of being a plant pathologist is that all the students who do field work, uh, they harvest their crops and then yeah. they just bring them and we can just, yeah, eat them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in my case, my work is mainly in the lab. So uh -huh. I don't really do field work, 
but definitely I have ate a lot of tomatoes because one of my friends were with them and yeah so it, it is great we we'd really love to have that chance of eating our own experiments <laughs> yeah totally that's good we well, don't want to waste them so that sounds yeah. great to me that's mm -hmm. awesome um so as it seems like there are so many applications for understanding like how to keep plants healthy. So what can you do with a degree in plant pathology? Well, that's an excellent question. You can do a lot of things. <laughs> so plant pathologists are basically plant doctors. So we make sure that plants are healthy so people can have access to that food or that crop. Uh, so plant pathologists can work all over the world in government agencies, industry, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions. They can be in the lab doing experiments as myself, or they can also be in the field, growing crops and uh, learning uh, how to ma better manage diseases, etc. They can also work as a teachers, researchers, diagnosticians, uh, consultants, plant health managers, they can do communication, um, like rich activities, just like this one. Uh, they can promote plant health or work in science policy to regulate food products and making sure that those products that are coming out from the market are safe for people. So that's like the main goal. Like everything plant pathologists do is to guarantee that people can have access to safe and nutritious food. That's great. That's a, such a noble thing to do. I love that. I love seeing like applications of science being able to be used right away. It's like very gratifying. Um, so Nick would like to know, this is the question that came in, how exactly do you silence a gene? Like how would you even go about doing that? Okay, well, so the way we do it is we use uh, bacteria, which we use a system that it, has, it was developed a long time ago. And in this system we have uh, a viral vector actually that we can introduce a sequence that is similar to the gene we want to target and then that vector we to introduce it in the plant we need to transform it in a bacteria named a probacterium tumorphosis which uh, it's it's like a tool and then what is going to do the plant has already this awesome mechanism that actually it uses to defend from viruses, which is the silencing RNA. So what the plant is going to do by itself is going to take this vector that we introduce and it's going to use it as a reference to go and silence their own genes. It's like a trick. Like we trick the plant to uh, pretend that, that what we are introducing to silence is not from it, so it's going to do it, so yeah. It's funny. Agrobacterium has come up in every one of these sessions. It's like really driven home the point of like how important agrobacterium is, not only as a pathogen for plants, but also as a tool. It's, it's like, it's wild that the same organism could be something that kills plants and really messes up their whole day, but also such a super important thing for scientists to basically play with. That's, that's awesome. Yes, yes, um, yes. So I'm glad that came up. Um, so when you're not in the lab, when you're not working on your PhD, um, what are you doing outside the lab just for fun? Well, I like to do a lot of uh, outreach activities. I just like to talk to people about uh, plant viruses, plant diseases, and viruses in general. I also like to, uh, I also like to read, like, 
whatever I can read and I, whatever I can find, mainly suspense books and historical novels. But yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much what I enjoy doing. So cool. that's a scientist. Mm-hmm. I also love reading. I during the pandemic I have read so many books because I'm like, there's nothing else to do. I'm like going on walks around my neighborhood listening to audiobooks. So I've mm-hmm. like really been liking reading during the pandemic. Um, yeah. I love listening to podcasts too. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. That's like, you learn a lot from them. So yeah. Sure. And this session will be turned into a podcast. If you go on your podcast app and look up Skype a scientist, all of the sessions that we do in these Q and A's are available as a podcast. Oh, that's great. Fun fact. Cool. Mm-hmm. So what do you think both the, your hardest part about being a PhD student is, and also the best part? What are like the highs and lows of being a PhD student? Okay, well, one of the hardest parts uh, of being a, in my case, of being an international grad student is being far away from home, family, and you know, my friends, all my daily routine that I develop over the years, of, over my youth years. <laughs> uh, so, but um, I think that actually that's very important as a PhD student, that a PhD requires a lot of emotional support. And having a supportive and strong cohort, it's very important. So another thing that I have learned that is challenging in my case, it was learning how to reach the public and how to communicate your research in a mm-hmm. way that is easy to understand, uh, not very technical and not full of jargon, etc. So also sometimes uh, we spend so much time in the lab, you know, studying one specific thing, one specific pathway of breathing that we forget what is the ultimate goal of what, why we are doing science. And as a plant scientist, as I mentioned, is to fight, or as a plant pathologist, is fight plant diseases and guarantee that people have food. And uh, my favorite part of being a PhD student is interacting with a lot of cultures. My department is very diverse. And in general, U.S. is so rich in diversity. I have found great people along the way. I have, like, make a home far away from home, pretty much. And it has been great just to learn from students and postdocs their traditions, share their food, learn about uh, what did they do before being grad students, etc. And precisely what we try to do is to incorporate and be inclusive and take advantage of that huge diversity. So for example, in my case, when we, well, in our case, when we develop some infographics, we also translate them to other languages because we have people from China, people from Japan, people from Brazil. So it's just like all this cultural diversity that can be incorporated towards science and to do outreach that's amazing that's a really that's really wonderful to hear um yeah translating science into other languages and outreach is is amazing it's something that we're trying to do at skype scientists too um and and that's super important i'm glad you're doing that um so i guess do you have anything that you'd like to share about being an international student other than how awesome it is to work together uh with other international students in your lab um in the u.s Yes. So, um, being an international student is challenging 
of course, because besides being a grad student and being grad school and having all those difficulties already, you need to recognize that you are far away from home and you don't have that support network. Or if you do have it, it's mainly virtual right now. Uh, so it can get lonely, it can be difficult, uh, it can be hard to adapt. Like some, most of us are drawn to a different culture with a different language. So when we arrive, we do not have that confidence yet to like just go out and communicate and suddenly start speaking English and suddenly, you know, like try to share your culture because you never know how it's going to be taken. Like what you never know how people is going to react to that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, most of us try to be safe. And especially um, I have to say that this past years being an immigrant in general hasn't been the most wonderful experience. It has been challenging. Uh, international students just recently have had had faced several restrictions and that is just uh, coming from people who students who are here just trying to learn and contribute to society here in the US or around the world and then they have been a little bit attacked and exposed in certain ways so yeah that's one of the main reasons why i was excited or motivated to be an advocate for international students just to share and inform people how important are international students uh, in the u.s like they contribute to the economy but not only that it's like international students are people like we are humans and then we not only bring like the knowledge and our culture but we also be bring our passion and we bring uh, what we are and we just want to make sure that everyone knows about it. So yeah, we just want to be part of it. We want to be included. We want to be in the table. Thank you so much for talking about that. That's really, I'm so glad that we, that we brought that up. That's great. Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, no problem. Um, do you have, not to change the subject to something much lighter, but do you have any uh, fun facts about plants that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I had uh, several, I was thinking like, uh, I, because it's a fun fact, I should make, I should probably say one of a fungi, you know? <laughs> and then uh, Chelsea mentioned it and it was that, for example, some plant pathogens, uh, can, we can eat them, like it's Lagomedes, which is Cornusmat or, uh, yeah, we can, it, it's a delicacy in some parts of the world is also, forgot actually the, the name in Spanish but yeah so but one of the other facts that I had was that we can make meat from plants yeah so oh. it's yeah it's um it's right now going or taking like a huge impact uh I have heard all over the radio so there are a lot of companies like Impossible Food and Big John Burger that are creating plants-based products and it's just like they started with cheese and then now they are doing meat and all kinds of meats like chicken, beef, and pork. So it is very interesting. Uh, they just pretty much are trying to stimulate the, the, the texture 
-hmm. and the, yeah, the flavor as much as possible from the meat. So they have even incorporated some genes that make like a plant look, well, the meat like look like it's sleeping because they are using, um, yeah, some, some specific genes and pathways. So yeah, it's, it's great and it's, it's increasing because of course it has making meat from plants it has a lower impact in the environment yeah so actually uh, it's like they say that their production emits 89 percent fewer greenhouse greenhouse gases than a regular burger so a lot of people who is opting to be more environmental friendly they are trying to incorporate this kind of food in their meals so yeah it's not for everyone uh, yeah. I have to I have to confess but it is it is just increasing and now and then it's just good to say okay I'm going to try it so next time someone is in a restaurant you can say like okay I'm going to try this uh, impossible uh, food or this vegan burger and this hamburger with plant-based products and then let's compare and see how it tastes I, I haven't yet to try one, but mm -hmm. it's definitely on my list of things to do. I just like don't eat burgers that much, but um, I yeah. gotta do it. It's yeah. like it's on my list of foods to try. Um, mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, so <laughs> uh, yeah, um, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, okay, so we've got one question here from Nick. Um, are there any plant viruses or diseases that the average person would have heard of? Any plant viruses and diseases? Well, yeah. Let me think. I mean, um, I have to confess that plant viruses are not as advertised as human viruses. <laughs> yeah. Like we don't hear right now. It's like everything about SARS-CoV-2 and SARS, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS and Evil and Zika and all these viruses. Right. So, but maybe cassava mosaic disease or yeah, the viruses that cause that disease are like a huge problem and are mainly are one of the main uh, viruses advertised or what i have seen the most often once i hear in the news about um tomato yellow leaf core virus but it was once and i was like oh, <laughs> that is awesome right right one virus is in the news but yeah we tend to hear more about animal viruses yes cool um, okay, so before we wrap up, we like to ask everybody the same two questions before we wrap up. And the first question is, um, if you had the attention of everyone in the world and you could tell them one thing about, like, in relation to your area of expertise, what would that one thing be? One thing, um, I think that uh, I would just say that plants in general are important. Uh, they tend to look, to be overlooked uh, because they don't receive as much as attention as human diseases. But plant diseases are important. They play a huge role in food security and investing in plant sciences and plant technology and plant biotechnology in general it is important to not only achieve food security but making sure that the food we are eating it is safe too and 
yeah, so that is one of the main main things. And yeah, about my field, I believe. And yeah, and I also like try to tell people like, yeah, plants also get infected by viruses, well, bacteria also and fungi. But yeah, and that's like one of the main main things that we need to recognize that plants get sick and for example, if we do not protect them, um, diseases can wipe out that, that food crop. Like one of the examples is bananas, that everyone loves bananas or everyone eats bananas because it's very easy to get and very cheap and very easy to, uh, to have access to. So, but there is a bacteria which is named Panama disease, which is really affecting banana production so the main banana we consume is highly susceptible so if we do not find a way to make sure that the banana crop is resistant to that bacteria actually in seven years we may have no bananas that would be terrible because <laughs> i love bananas yes yes so that important is in plant pathology like our plant diseases like they can cause huge effects. And we don't usually say it until it's too late, unfortunately. Right. So as a plant pathologist, that we are aware of those things, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Even if no one heard of it, it's better that someone has their favorite fruits available and their favorite fruit available that they do not have anything. So, yeah. Cool. Um, we had another question come in from the audience from Laura. Mm -hmm. um, Laura wants to know, do you think we can feed the world without GMOs and chemicals? That's an excellent question. Um, so from my perspective and my opinion, I will say it's not, it's not possible. If we want to feed, because it's not only about feeding the world, it's about to find the most sustainable way to do it. Like we want to make sure that the population has access to food, but we want to make sure that in our way, we don't destroy the environment. So um, we know that, for example, by 2050, and it's always 2050, it's like we cannot get past 2050. I cannot imagine the future past that day. Right. But by 2050, the population will increase from 7.8 billion people to 9.8 billion people. And that means that we have to produce from 60 to 120% more food than we produce today. And we consider that right now, in this moment, one of nine people is suffer, suffering from hunger. Like if we cannot guarantee access to safe and nutritious food for every single person in this world right now, what is going to happen in 30 years? So to really make sure that we can provide food and the best of the food we need to use plant biotechnology and the modern breeding techniques. Yeah. And GMOs aren't less healthy, right? Like they're often more healthy because they add nutrients and, um, and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, GMOs have, have just a bad reputation and advertisement. It just happened with the GMOs, the same that happened with vaccines when someone said like vaccines can cause autism and that research was actually was withdrawn 
and yeah, like scientists say, like that is wrong, but it was just one that knew, and it was so constant that people put in their minds, and the same happened with GMO. I think that one of the, as a scientist, I have to recognize that one of the things that we didn't write was to educate people at the beginning and really explain these techniques because yes, they are complex, uh, but if we really sit down and say like, here is what is what we are doing and here's what is happening. And people, well, we humans has been domesticated crops for hundreds of years. Like the crops we are eating now were a selection of the crops our ancestors uh, selected. <laughs> like they breed, like they randomly breed and some crops were better than others and they, they choose it and they decide to grow that. So right now with the modern technology, we are doing the same, but it's been more precise and less time consuming and less resources used. Because honestly, we don't have a hundred years if our food crop is going to disappear in seven years. So we need to make sure that in seven years, that food we love is there. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for answering that. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, and then here is the question that we ask everybody that uh, I think is the hardest question we ask all day. Uh, what, if you had, the, again, you have the attention of the whole world. And you can tell them one thing about literally anything. It can be big picture important or like silly and insignificant, but important to you. Um, what do you tell the entire world that you want them to take to heart and know? Well, I will echo what Chelsea and Dr. Louise mentioned before, which is diversity is important. Uh, it's important for everything, for to bring ideas. Like if we really want to solve it, problems in the world, we need to, we cannot spare any idea. We cannot spare any uh, person. Like we need to use all the diversity, all the diverse ideas that we can to save the problems in the world. Uh, not only that, it has to be included. Like we need to make sure that even when people is there, because diversity is so easy. It's the easiest things you can do. Like you can just uh, select people and say like, hey, you look different than the average. Just stand there next to the door to take a picture, you know? Right, right. Uh, that's, that's easier. But then we need to make sure that the people is included, like they are sitting at the table and their opinions are listened. And that's one of the main things. Um, the other is just be kind to each other. I mean, right now we are facing uh, a pandemic, a huge pandemic. Well, pandemics are huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge change. <laughs> It's a huge change uh, uh, that we are going through. And the yeah. only way to go into this is, yeah, it's together. And we need to help each other and we need to support each other. And mainly, I always say like this, but mainly women should lift other women and support other women. So I, yeah, I would really go like highlight that, like be kind and treat each other with respect. Awesome advice. Totally co-sign. That's awesome. Um, yeah. so do you have anything that you'd like to plug, places that we can find you on social media? Anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yes. So um, I, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is my name, actually, Melissa Mojo. And we, yeah, like if you want to check or learn more about plant diseases, you can check the resources in the 
APS website, which is the American Pathological Society. They have great resources for teachers and also for kids. Um, we are in this, this year is the International Year of Plant Health, actually. So they have developed several, yeah, several resources for kids and for teachers. So yeah, just check, just check them in. And if you have any question, like you can find me in, in Twitter and yeah, I'll be happy to share more about plant diseases and the importance of studying plant diseases. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I've learned a lot and I thought this was, this whole week has been really fantastic because I don't, I didn't know much about plants. And so getting uh, kind of the scoop from three different people has been really fantastic. So I'm so glad uh, the APS has, has partnered with us. Erin, um, thank you for signing. As always, also your flamingo earrings today are just so good. They're snakes. Wow. Okay. Well, that's also awesome. I just saw something pink and assumed flamingo, silly me, uh, but they look great. Okay. So uh, we, our next session is going to be on Tuesday, the 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be talking about lizards with Chelsea Connor, who is a fantastic science communicator. It's going to be a delightful time. We hope to see you all here. Um, and in the meantime, you know, like Melissa said, let's all just try to be kind to each other. Uh, and uh, thank you again for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank Gracias. you. <laughs>